Kia ora, and welcome to Talking Performance. I'm your host, Jay Carter, and in this podcast, I aim to connect with people to chat about performance and what it means to them in an effort to share some gold with our community. I aim to have guests on from various parts of the performance world, such as athletes, coaches, and business leaders, ordinary people who do extraordinary things. These sessions are recorded live on Facebook on the group page Talking Performance at 8pm New Zealand time if you'd like to watch the show live. If you enjoy the podcast, it would be great if you could share it with your friends and even leave us a review. Righto, I think we are live, mate. Live on Facebook. We're live. This is debut appearance on Facebook. Jesus, Um, there's a first first for everything, Jay Carter. (laughs) Yeah, I did see when I messaged you, you said you weren't familiar with Facebook. So, yeah, I'm familiar my, with it, but I'm not a user. Yeah, I lost my password two years ago, and you know what? It was a godsend. Mm. Um, just one less thing to do on the internet. But, um, yeah, um, listen, delighted to be on this uh, call or connection with you today, mate. So, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thanks for coming. So, yeah. um, I'll, I'll start a bit of an intro, but I'll let you carry it on. So, um Tonight we have Dara Sheridan, formerly of Galway in Ireland, currently uh, leading the coaching team at the HPSNZ and whose purpose is to enhance the impact of HP coaches in the performance environment. I wish I could claim that work as my own, but uh, not. So I'll let you fill in the gaps, Dara. I know you've had, uh, you started off as an athlete, as a football player, yeah, Got into coaching and now you found yourself on the other side of the world. So I'll let you fill in the gaps. Yeah, thank you and and hi everybody. And yeah, so I, I left um I left my hometown, which is Galway on the west coast of Ireland, at the age of uh, seventeen uh, to pursue um, my dream of playing football with a Premier League football club. And I, I was quite fortunate at the age of seventeen to get a ticket to go to the UK on a two year contract um, with Aston Villa. Um, so the irony is um, my best job in life was my first job and uh, um, it didn't last so long. I, I was there for two years, got deselected at the age of 19, which was kind of my first big kind of uh, transition that I experienced in, in professional sport and um, had to really figure out a way to pivot and um, find another level, um, you know, reset. And, and I decided to return to Ireland to play in our professional league and return to education. And um, probably the big thing I learned from that transition, Jay, was that, um, you know, all my eggs were literally in one basket. And um, looking back, um, you know, just the importance of actually having a life outside of sport, having um, particularly at that stage of my development, having an education out that was really important. So, um, so yeah, so building on from that, I, I went to university in Ireland, two different universities over six years, studied sports management and then sports science to a BSc level. Um, and during that six-year period of my life, I was your classic student athlete. I was living the dream, playing, um, you know, training 20 hours a week, playing in our national league, um, at that time, I was kind of semi-professional and um, we were quite fortunate that the team went on to do really well with what we had. We met a few um, National Cup finals and then my career ended at the age of 24 due to injury. Um, ironic, it was kind of um, ironically playing at the highest level I'd ever played, which was UEFA Cup um, and was involved in a tackle, uh, destroyed my left knee. So at the age of 24, my career was was cut short um, and I was quite fortunate that the first transition had informed the last transition in that I actually had a plan for life outside of sport. Um, um, and that particular period of time, um, I had my own startup company, a sports development company, um, where um, at the time, sports science in Ireland was really kind of, um, you know, embedding into um, our sports sector. And um, I got some services up and running with a number of, of teams in Ireland. Um, and then in 2008, I got the opportunity to be part of a startup team for the Irish Institute of Sport, which um, was the first time in Ireland we, we got kind of um, got some significant investment, try to get together a critical set of services for athletes and coaches who were competing for Ireland at the world stage. Um, spent the best part of um, 10 years there across two main roles. So started the Athlete Life Service with Ken Lynch, actually, who's here in New Zealand, who leads our athlete development space. Um, 
And then prior to the London 2012 Games, I was given the opportunity to take over our Pursuit of Excellence program, which is um, our equivalent of the Coach Accelerator program in New Zealand, um, and ran that from essentially 2011 to uh, um, the Rio Games. Uh, and then after the Rio Games, I took over responsibility for all capability and expertise across all of the ologies and therapies in the organization. And um, 2018, I decided um, I got a bit of a niche. I, I really wanted to visit where a class in coaching and uh, the role to lead performance coaching in HBS and Z came up. And um, I don't know how I got the role, but I got the role. And uh, two and a half plus years later, here I am in your beautiful country. Um, really love the people, the culture, its distinctiveness. Um, um, and I can really see why Kiwi Sport is uh, world leading uh, for a whole range of different reasons. Uh, and very fortunate and privileged to be in the role that I'm in, working in sport for a start, but then working for um, this organization uh, and in particular the coaches that we represent every day in our work. So, yeah, so um, I think I've probably had about nine different transitions, about 12 different roles in the last 23 years since I left Galway. And um, yeah, sport has been very good to me. It's been yeah. a wonderful teacher and a wonderful, um, and I've learned a lot. So yeah, my uh, my head's going crazy because I was trying to just log things as you said it to go. I want to come back to that. I want to come back to that. But the very first one was uh, when you mentioned about deselection. Mm. Um, was that Aston Villa? Mm. That was the first. Well, um, I guess that was the first transition. What does deselection look like at that level? Um, a lot of uncertainty. Um, a, a lot of um, I was fooling myself. Um, to be brutally honest, in my second year, I, I met a step up to reserve team level at the age of 18. I had three internationals ahead of me. Um, I'd arrived at a level and I just wasn't good enough in arriving at that level. Um, <clears throat> and three years earlier, I had a trial with Liverpool Football Club. And um, this was after playing in a National Cup final where um, I was essentially one of the top schools players in the country. We won the game 3-1. I scored two goals went on trial to Liverpool um, and three days into the trial, the technical director of the club, um, Steve Highway is a bit of a legend, uh, pulled me aside and, and kind of said, listen, for this afternoon session, keep your kit on, kept my kit on. And I went through this technical assessment for 90 minutes that I'd never experienced uh, in, in, my, in, in my experience as a player, I guess. And at the end of the assessment, he said, come into my office, come into his office. And he kind of slid this big, like, visitor's book across the table and he said sign that you're not a Liverpool player and I said what do you mean Mr Highway he said you can't hit an in-step drive pass on your dominant foot stationary never mind on the move never mind he said mate he said you're too far behind wow how old were you I was 15 and so that night I flew back to Ireland parents collected me in the airport so what what the hell happened and I said I think I was told by a coach I wasn't good enough and I went back to my two coaches in Galway and I said, do you know what an in-step drive pass is? And they were like, what, what the hell is that? And um, and then I actually realized um, for the first time in my career that I, I was essentially a big fish in a small pond. And I'd moved it to be a small fish in a big pond. And I didn't know what I needed to know in order to get better. Um, and that story for me always sticks with me, particularly in my sense of purpose and just the importance of supporting coaches to do the right thing at the right time in the right way with the person they're working with to ensure that they are ultimately, um, you know, providing the right things. Uh, and it's important that the growth and development of the coach is commensurate with the growth and development of an athlete. And um, so that was kind of one of the big learnings. And I, and I guess the deselection, nine of us were sacked in the one day, nine seats outside the office. Um, the meeting took um, about 15 minutes three coaches sitting opposite me and the coaches kind of said, we actually don't know why we selected you to come here in the first place, which I thought was a bit poor. And um, so I left the club that day a, a little bit stripped, to say the least. And, um, and the context around that period is there's 90 professional clubs and the market basically releases Anthem up to 10 to 15 players per club. So everyone's fighting to get, you know, uh, one of the 10 seats that's, you know, small number of, of, of roles. So, so that was the scramble. And um, 
And the irony is, last year, um, Aston Villa initiated um, a big um, a, abuse inquiry to the role and the conduct of those very coaches in that setting, and they they eventually sacked one of the coaches twenty years on. So, um, yeah, so, so some deep history there, and um, you know, it doesn't cost a lot to care. Uh, and it's kind of in those moments, it's what you say and how you say it that I think is is particularly important. Um, one of the unique things about <clears throat> this podcast is we go live. And so we mm. get questions from time to time. And we have one from Fintan Kennedy in Sligo. Come on, Fintan. <laughs> he said, uh, greetings from Sligo, Dara. How long did it take you to recover from the Steve Highway dismissal? And how did you recover? Great question, Fintan. By the way, Sligo, great spot for all the Kiwis who love surfing and I love Guinness, lovely part of the world, the Northwest. Um, so thanks, Fintan. Um, how did I recover? Um, the recovery really was what you'd classify as a learning response. I became curious around, okay, what the hell is a in-step drive pass? How can I uh, uh, make myself better? Um, I went into great outdoors um, uh, in Galway and I brought six miter footballs and I asked my best friend to help me for a period of time to work on that technique plus other um, kind of dead ball techniques um, that I probably needed to work on and I literally coached myself um, 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 I played continued to play for both of those teams but I, I didn't train with the teams anymore I needed to do what I needed to do to get better and, um, and the irony is other muscles and other techniques actually developed, uh, which then helped me to actually get to Astonville. I, I became a, a bit of a, I wouldn't say a dead ball specialist. Um, so, yeah, so pain plus reflection equals improvement. Um, and, um, and I think that's a really important formula to responding to failure is can you, can you convert it into a gift? Can you get better? Um, so yeah, so I learned that I guess at a at a really a really young age. It seems like high self awareness for um, for me, like thinking especially anyone getting that sort of feedback is pretty tough, particularly a fifteen year old boy mm. or, or young man. Um, yeah, that, that seems a little bit unusual to me in a lovely way. Mm. Um, and then the other thing, I guess, the challenge was your coaches. Um, they almost hadn't neglected to tell you because by the sounds of it, they didn't know what they didn't know. Yeah. So that must be a tough thing to deal with for a young um, aspiring athlete in any sport, right? Like the coach is doing their best, like no coach is intentionally trying to harm anyone, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I think it was very instinctual, my response. Like I could only see one way to deal with it and that was just to get better. Um, yeah. Simple as that. Um you know, I needed to get a number of footballs. I needed to have a pitch and I needed to have somebody to help me to get the footballs when I, uh, you know, not hit the target or not, or not carry it out. And, and that was my best friend, Paul Davey, who's still my best friend uh, to this day. And he was um, a bloody nifty right winger uh, in his own way as well. So um, I think what really underpinned the instinct, though, I had a dream, Jay. I, I, I wanted to be a boy in green. I, I, I grew up in the 90s in Ireland where our national team literally transformed how Ireland was perceived on the world stage. You know, we took down some big teams in 88 in Germany. Then we went to the Italian work, or the World Cup in Italy in 1990, got to the quarterfinal against Italy. Our country went balubas. <laughs> um, and that's what shaped the belief system. Um, and, you know, that was my 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 driver and and like my response to steve highway was jesus thanks for telling me um i didn't know uh what can i actually do about it um and still to this day i think that's that's a principle i have you know you can't expect others to get better unless you're actually demonstrating what it takes to get better yourself and um you don't survive in this world long if, if you're not if you're not always getting better do they um I guess they've got such such great numbers that they can just cut and go, right? Like there's, they don't need to develop. I imagine if you popped up in the New Zealand football system at a 15-year-old, they may take a little bit more time to go, this kid's got a fair bit here, we'll try and help him. But I guess they've got the numbers, they can just dismiss you and someone else will come along. They know what they're looking for, Jay. What's that? They know... They know they, they, they know they know what it takes that they know what matters 
Um, you know, um, the thing is, do all of the other touch points around the player actually have the same degree of capability and awareness around what matters? And and that's why it's really, really important that, um, you know, for coaches working with an athlete and their rate of growth and progression uh, is not met or aligned to the coach's ability to actually meet that growth to ensure there is um, progression. I've certainly seen situations where athletes and players have outgrown their coaches and I believe that was certainly the case uh, in, in my situation and, and um, where I grew up, um, my address literally became a critical factor. If I was living in the north inner city of Dublin, the, the, the coaching experience uh, and, you know, the, the competition I would have got, I would have been small fish in a big bowl um, and I could have got better. So mm. having the environment and the right support at the right time is just, just so important. Mm. A um, couple of Alison McLean has said, uh, like we often reflect, choice and play, play victim to or empower through. And obviously you chose to empower through. Um, Fintan Kennedy, I think you've developed much more than the in-step drive pass since that. It's interesting mm-hmm. to see how many great coaches have peaked in their teenage years and suffered a failure and developed the tools to help others. But there are so many others who don't cope so well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so obviously that, I guess that was the next part of it—the transition from from player to student mm. player and educated coach, and now a leader. So, um, I guess what drew you to the role at HPSNZ because it sounded like you're on a, doing some pretty cool stuff in Ireland, anyway. Yeah, just just prior to that, like, I, and this is kind of segue into your question, like, um, you know, I think it's pretty important for a role like this that I've I've. I've um, demonstrated some coaching capability myself and, and albeit I don't have a decorated um, coaching career because I had no real interest to become a coach or to give back to my sport when I retired um, just because of the nature of the retirement experience, injury, poor medical support. Um, you know, the analogy was, you know, circus pulling out of town and you were left on the side of the road. And um when I was inside the Institute of Sport, um, Paralympics Ireland um, approached me about um, getting involved with the, with the Paralympic football program. So the context here was seven aside, no offside. Um, and these boys have um, a physical disability called cerebral palsy, um, which is essentially the analogy is like the wiring not working in your muscles so that they want to do something. But ultimately, the muscle doesn't function so well. Um, some Some players get get spasms and there's different degrees of um of the disability and um so i coached that team at a national uh, european world level for three years and i gotta say it was an absolute privilege um so i guess the only really deep coaching experience i have is in disability sport whatever that is because these boys um had so much ability um um uh, and that was a quite a transformative um experience working with them and really seeing and understanding coaching from a, a very, very different lens. Um, so, yeah, so um, I guess in, in, in coming to New Zealand, um, the role here, as I've said, is really a, a privilege. I lead a team of five people and we work into 14 sports, 120 coaches. Those coaches are working with New Zealand's very best um, athletes. Um, we provide a range of um, supports in kind of two ways. One is to the employer. So we provide advice around how to develop a strategy. We might provide advice around the recruitment process or we may take part in the recruitment process itself. We provide Prime Minister scholarship support to the tune of nearly a million dollars. Um, and then the team work tightly with the coaches in terms of providing a range of services, whether it's performance feedback, whether it's debriefing support, um, um, you know, whether it's building a certain part of their practice or system that they want us to look at. Um, so the sport that I work more closely into is actually athletics. And I've had the privilege and opportunity to um, work with a number of their key um, employed coaches. They employ nine coaches. And there's a beautiful mix of, you know, the wise owls of, of Raylene Bates, Kirsten Hellier, Dale Stevenson, um, right the way down to James Sandlin, who's a new coach coming through Christchurch, 24 years of age, young intern, SNC background, the next generation of, of Kiwi coaches coming through. Um, so, yeah, and, and, you know, 
I think key in the work is the belief in the people. I believe in what they do. It's innovative. It's sophisticated. Um, we call them coaches, but they are much more than coaches. They manage and they lead as well as they coach. Um, I kind of asked myself the question, why are we still calling them coaches? Mm. Um, because they're more than that. Um, so I don't think they're really fully understood by the general public. And, and I think certainly um, over the next three to four years, we really want to raise our game and how these men and women are seen, the perception around the craft and the pathways around enabling others to come onto this journey and to become a Kiwi coach on the world stage is very much what our, our focus is um, now into, into Paris and LA. What did you know about uh, HPSNZ prior to coming? Um, well, I had a couple of colleagues who, who work in the system, fortunately. So Carla McManus, who's head of physiology, um, with our colleagues in rowing, and she was our head of performance science in Dublin and pretty serious operator, knows her stuff. And then Ken Lynch um, as head of athlete development. So um, I had a really good indicator that, you know, there's going to be a price of entry to get into this organization. You're going to have to show that you've got things that are going to add value and, um, the interview took place over four days, um, three years ago. And um, I think I was interviewed by 14 different people. Um, um, you know, went down to Cambridge, was interviewed by two performance directors. I was interviewed by three coaches. I was interviewed by about seven or eight of the staff. The coaching team interviewed me. And all of the feedback went back to one guy, um, Pete Fitzinger, and, and then I had a final interview, which was the last touch, where they took all of the aggregated perspectives and feedback about me. And then they really um, opened me up. And um, But for me, it was like it was like being in a candy store, mate. Um, um, the system here is so much more defined and sophisticated compared to where I was coming from. Um, and I could see I could potentially achieve a lot more with what's there because that's part of what you need to do in the Irish context. You need to be able to do a whole lot, but very little. You need to be very innovative and resourceful. So I think they could see that. Um, they could see the passion and the belief in, in what these men and women do. That's pretty, pretty um, unequivocal. And um, and I also wanted to give my wife and three kids a new experience and, and to see another part of the world. And when I was flying down here, I never realized how big this world actually is. You know, it's, mm. it's a, it's a long journey and it's, you know, three hours, um, you know, uh, southeast of Australia. How the hell can it be that far south? Like we're already at the end of the world, you know. Um, but that, that blew me away when I came here because I'd never been to New Zealand before. So, yeah. How hard was it on the family, mate? Like young family, other side of the world, lose a lot of the family support and connections. That must have been a um, pretty big decision. Yeah, pretty big. Like three months before the move, we had our third child um and it was really really tough on my family because essentially you know four grandparents and you know my two brothers have have kids and I'm godfather to two of those children and it was bloody tough um but a really important principle stuck myself and my wife this is our life this mm. is our dream this is what we want to do and um if you're going to love us you've got to love what we love and um, the family certainly respected that and and um, yeah COVID has been pretty tough obviously the notion of you know you can't go home even if you wanted to and that's obviously getting a lot better um, and you know I've two very good friends of mine their mothers mothers um, one mother in particular she died of um, COVID God rest her and, and so I've seen the real damage that COVID has done to my country and to the people um, um yeah, and, and, and I'm certainly very grateful for how the leadership here in New Zealand have approached the situation and made the right moves in the right way, the right time. Um, so, yeah, so you only live your life once. You've got to go for these things, and and and, um, and here we are. Yeah, nice. Um, if we go back to your time in Ireland, I read um, an article, I think it was in the Irish Sun, and uh, you were saying that a man by the name of Gary Keegan had a, a uh, big influence on you and he um so i did i uh, had a look into into him and he said something that i thought was pretty cool he said um it was all about intention that sense of courage around the ambition we set ourselves um and talking about athletes and 
he could tell how connected they were to that ambition that they'd set. And in Ireland, it was a um, the athletes would be uncomfortable saying they wanted to be world class. And he he led the boxing program that's been obviously highly successful. So, um, did you, you worked with him at the Irish Institute? Is that right? Yeah, I wouldn't be here only for him if I'm. Yeah. Got to be honest, and I and I think that's a real measure of impact. He was um, our first leader in the organisation. Um, he transitioned into the Institute of Sport in 2009, just after Beijing, and he took our Irish boxing program um, from kind of okay to actually great. Um, the boys had a number of medals in Beijing, uh, and based upon his credibility as a high performance director in that particular sport. <laughs> He was given an opportunity um, to really, really create an institute of sport that that really, um, you know, has got the nice um, balance of the ambition and the intention, but but actually putting putting some stuff um, and some services and an environment. And um, over a ten year period, you know, um, we started in a old government building with nothing. I mean, nothing. I, I remember a delegation coming over from China to see what we were doing. Don't ask me why, because we were just absolutely um, with nothing in 2008, 2009. Um, the big thing we had to show was our BlackBerry phones actually, which were pretty cool at the time. And um, so this delegation comes into the building and literally it's, it's an old fishery building where it's like, it's like a big killer bug came through the building and everyone died and there was no one there. But here was an Institute of Sport and four or five guys in an office trying to start something up. and. So we went into the boardroom and um, our national sports campus was previously our national agricultural research campus. So on it, it's like prime land, loads of cattle uh, and loads of sheep and stuff. So so when the Chinese were, delegation were coming down the driveway, they could see all, all this, um, all these cattle and all this livestock. So they kind of opened up the meeting through the interpreter to going, you know, da, 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 talking away about, you know, wh- why have you why view all of these livestock on your national sports campus? And um, Gary, through the interpreter, responds basically saying, well, unfortunately, our um, advanced research program, we cannot talk about it. <laughs> the Chinese were like, they were like, well, we just work on some cow juice formula or something. And But but it was that ethos, the gorilla mentality, achieve a lot with very little. Mm-hmm. I think I think the Kiwi ethos, the eight wire, um, we share a similar streak similar dna uh, around that and our context in ireland is 800 years of oppression and tyranny by our next door neighbor um, which you experienced from a different direction um, but the belief system intergenerationally over time gets worn down and you never realize what you could be something bigger than what you are particularly on a world stage yeah. um, and i think what our soccer team did in the 90s really broke that mold and what gary did with the box team broke that mold um, and prior to him leaving, the Rio Quadrennial was the most successful for Ireland with multiple podium successes, European, world. Um, Rio was only okay for the Irish team, if I'm being honest. Our boxing team didn't deliver. Um, we, we, we had a podium finish in, in, um, in, in rowing uh, and in sailing, which was we're beginning to see other sports actually achieve success. Um, but our flagship programme didn't deliver with, with some challenges there. But... Um, but a huge impact on me. You know, this man is a wonderful strategist and a wonderful humanist in the same breath. Um, yeah, he was awesome. He the, is uh, awesome. Uh, Wayne Smith talks a bit about that at the Chiefs when they, they had this uh, rickety old uh, building and training facility when the Chiefs were struggling. Um, but they were it was some of their best um, seasons in terms of performance, training out of this old beaten up shed. Um, what do you think so I guess there's two questions potentially here in one but um, obviously we both spent some time at Manatuke Marae a few mm. or maybe two years ago now mm. um, and that certainly had a massive influence or impact on me um, mm. and, and I guess part of my question was I think that's something that's uniquely New Zealand, and it can be, it could be a really uh, strong competitive advantage. Mm. What um, does Ireland have the same sort of thing in terms of a competitive advantage within the culture that you see that you maybe weren't aware of until you left? 
Um, well, I guess when, when you trace back and look at the origins of our country, like our, our country, um, you know, was one of the centers of um, thinking and reflection going back 2000 years ago. When you actually look at um, Ireland, the context of Europe, um, you look at the relationship with Christianity, um, the various different monasteries. Um, th there was um, a lot of wisdom there, um, you know, linked deep into our history. And then as time goes on, um, as the country goes through the various different ages um, and gets shaped by various different influences, um, I think Ireland right now is kind of stuck somewhere between America and Europe. Um, um, you know, I'd really love for us as a country to really really have the conversation who are we on the world stage um, and in doing that it, it, it creates um, a brilliant opportunity to understand our difference because we are different mm. we we work hard um, we're very sociable um, I think we're very very creative um, but we need to speak to these qualities in a way that actually allows us to understand how we might convert these qualities into how Ireland might compete and radiate on, on a world stage. Um, and even when you start to reflect that conversation into a world stage, that in its own right is a really important change in that you have the permission ultimately um, to, to go and do that. So um, I believe when you look at some of the um, kind of indigenous customs, even just looking at how two farms would come together, um, um, going back you know, 200 years ago, they'd help each other to bring in the harvest and they'd have a big mehel, a big gathering, and they'd share each other's food. Um, Ireland is very, very tribal, akin to um, New Zealand here. Um, um, and a lot of these practices, Jay, are implicit. Um, mm. They're not ex explicit to the point where you can teach them into, their, into future gen generations. Yeah. Whereas what I really love about Tena, um, Napaki and Tijuana in, in um, Manatuki Marai is that they've created a whole code and a whole practice around these indigenous wisdoms that guys like me and you sit inside um, their world and really see a different perspective. And then we can learn how to understand each other's difference. Mm. Um, so what we've started to do as a coaching team now is to actually codify a number of our initiatives um, um, with the identity of key Maori terms. So we've like um, our big coach accelerator initiative um, for supporting female coaches is called Te Hapatanga, which means to elevate. And it's all about elevating female coaches inside our community. Yeah. And they've got a distinctive community in their own right and a, and a clear way around how we do that. Um, the first journey that those coaches go on is they learn the way inside the marae, the pofuri process, how you how you bring a group of people together and how you weave, how you connect. And then when you're connected, then how do you leverage all of the capabilities and experiences so that you get this thing called wananga, that high-speed learning? Like it, for me, um, when Christian and uh, Tana originally called this a human technology, I was like, technology? It is a technology. Mm. I really knew it is a technology. Um and I think this is where all the good stuff happens. And the good stuff is typically hard to see because it's invisible, it's relational. Um, um, and it's probably my best connections here in New Zealand happy, happen with Maori people. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely a, a kindred spirit there. So to answer your question, I think we've got um, Indigenous customs and practices, Nafina, the, the, the infamous warrior tribe, um, you know, the link with our indigenous game of hurling. Um, so there are some beautiful customs there that actually make me very proud to be Irish. Yeah. Um, I want to, I'll come back to Manatuke, but I've got a couple of questions that have come in. Uh, Tom Lowe, Dara, and the coaches you've been involved with, what has been the most common trait, habit, or mindset that has translated into success? Tom, you bad man, yeah. Good question. Um, one of the critical elements that I think separates those that coach exceedingly well and co those that are actually really successful and successful is their passion for coaching is unequivocal. And when I say passion, their commitment and their care 
around who they're working with and how they work with that person is 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 very distinctive. You see it and you feel it um, um, straight away. Um, I've rarely seen somebody that succeeds in this world that that hasn't got that core element. Um, the second thing I'd say around that, Tom, would be um, uh, an absolute openness and a commitment to getting better always. So you've got a, an insatiable learning appetite. So for me, I'd look at the rate and the quality of the learning. Um, and when you're sitting opposite like a world-class coach like Dale Stevenson, you know, what are you focused on right now? He can give you that and he can give you the why. And then all of a sudden he's on your case, picking back at you going, you know, what's your learning? What are you focused on? Like just real. So those two things, passion for coaching um, and a learning appetite that's just relentless, always getting better. There's two things for me. Sweet. Uh, Shane McConaughey, hi, Dara. What does success look like for HPSNZ athletes and coaches? Um, winning on the world stage and winning well in the Kiwi way. You work hard, earn the right. Um, and when you get there, don't forget where you come from. Stay humble, stay open and stay true to what it takes to actually stay there. Nice. Um, Tom Lowe said, uh, thanks, thanks, Dara. Uh, epic answer. Um, thanks, Tom. Scott, uh, Scott Curtis has said, Dara, what are some of the biggest challenges you face in your role? Jesus. Good one. Um, on a personal level, energy. You know, um, what do you part mean? of the challenge. Um, sustaining my energy, you know, just, I get, I love what I do. Uh, I love the people that I work with. Um, our, 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 our mission and the requirements around the mission, we've a lot of work to do to really bring it on to another level, to bring it from where it is to really, really great, but sustainably very like great. Um, so the energy, so my, my own ability just to self-manage, self-care, recover well, reflect well and to always stay focused on the things that are critical and, and, and to support my people and create the best conditions around them to do great work. Um, so that's kind of on a personal level, um, Jay. And at, at a strategic level, um, one of the biggest challenges is that for people to really, really understand the role of the coach, what they do, how they do it, and for us to articulate that. If we don't get better at doing that, the risk is... Um, coaches go unseen and unrecognized and that's not sustainable um, great work great innovation great impact deserves to be recognized at the highest level uh, um, so finding a mechanism to do that so that people's education and awareness as to the role of the coach and the importance of the coach to New Zealanders winning on the world stage um, is really important the second challenge is really around how we feed the coaches, how we challenge them to get better. You know, um, you know, when a coach goes through a learning experience, the challenge is always to create the next experience so that in them so that they can get better. And that's a real challenge for our team. And I reckon we've designed a set of initiatives over the next three to four years, which is really bold, really expansive, but challenging uh, these coaches to get better. Uh, and to translate what they do into their athletes getting better. If their athletes aren't progressing and performing when it matters, that's the ultimate measure of quality coaching. Um, are your athletes actually delivering when it matters? And um, so, yeah, feeding the coaches, creating the experiences for them to get better, continuing to open their thinking so that their practice stays cutting edges is um, really, really important. Um and then another challenge, kind of the final one, Jay, I'd say, is just the well-being of the coach, mm. sustainability. You know, there's a bit of a paradox in that, you know, on average, our best coaches at the top have between 10 to 15 years worth of, of applied experience at the highest level. But they get to a stage and point where they get married, have children, and this male or female, um, and they're like 120 days of the year up in the Northern Hemisphere. And that becomes a real challenge. 
um, for them and their ability to have young families and to live sustainably. So what we're trying to figure out is, is can we build more depth into our coaching talent pool so that coaches like that can take sabbaticals, take time off, recharge, regenerate, so we don't lose them to the challenge of staying in the role. Mm. Um, um, so we reckon with some of our new initiatives, we can transition those coaches back into working with us with other coaches or working earlier in the pathway in roles where they don't have to go offshore for long periods of time so they can recuperate and so that we can retain them. Yeah. So kind of the big, the big challenges. Yeah. Good question. Good question from Scotty. He's a good man. Um, on the uh, on that learning growth, one of the things that stood out to me um, was at Manatuke was when we were sitting around about I don't know eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night, still uh, still learning, and Ngāpaki, she just let us have it. Um, you know, and then. To me, that was a real strong, that was strong coaching and leadership right there yeah. in, in her display. How much mm. of a part do you reckon, um, I don't think conflict's the right word that I'm thinking about, but um, I guess in that sense, it wasn't conflict, but it was real purposeful challenge that she laid down for us. Mm. Do you think that gets done enough? Um. I think in the current climate around harassment and bullying, the trend would suggest that coaches aren't going to go to that age mm. um, um, with the challenges around how that will be perceived and how people feel. You know, get, getting better um, isn't easy. If it was easy, you wouldn't need a coach. And, um, and you know, Napaki's challenge to us, Jay, if you recall, was two days into this four-day experience, we were non-responsive to what they were putting in front of us, which is 2,000 years, 2,000-year-old wisdom. And we were sitting there like a, like, um, a blow, like a do, like we're like tourists sitting there going, okay, and, and, what, and what else have you got? Yeah. And her, her metaphor was, do you know what it's like to put out your best self and not to be seen? Yeah. Ah, oh, man. Um. So for me, when I look back at what she did, you know, I think coaching comes down to those two things, as Don Tricker would say, like awareness and responsibility. She created awareness in it. She woke us up. Mm. Um, so it is important a coach knows how to be fearless, but with skill. Yeah. And if you may recall, before she actually did that, we were kind of told, you know, to use your analogy, she teed up the ball and then she whacked us. Yeah. But she did, she did, she did tee it up. But skillfully challenging, um, you know, coaching is a is a mutual process, right? You, we, we've got our needs, an athlete has their dreams, and the, the shared aspect of that, uh, and the mutual component is, you know, it's really important. Coaches have their voice um, alongside the athlete voice, uh, and if they can figure out that shared realm, which is where the ambiguity lives and acts and creates questions and challenges. Um, um, and how can both parties stay awake to the challenge? And she woke us up. Yeah, yeah she did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> was strong. Um, how, how do you think coaching's evolved, let's say, since you started in the shed in 2008? Have you seen an evolution in coaching and how it's delivered at an HP level? Um, part of what I would say is the 10 years prior to our arrived, like the context was 2008, like in New Zealand, we needed to get employed coaches on the grid. And at the time it was still very much amateur volunteer, you know, and since then the number of co coaching roles has doubled from literally 45 to 90 roles. Um, so it feels like we're coming from the age of um, people actually having a fundamental set of conditions to have a job and a career to now, how do we refine this and lift it on to another level? Um, so how do we retain those coaches? Because we've got a generation of coaches in the system that are critical to New Zealand's success in the world stage. But in tandem with that, um, we need to build the base and identify and accelerate the development of the new coaches and the new athletes. And that's our big shift, Jay, if I'm being honest, um, our, our ability to actually build. It's kind of the short game around um, retain and perform and support those at the high end. And then the long game is 
find the next gen who are working with the next gen generation of athletes and really building that layer of performance coaching. And that is a legitimate career where you can, you know, be in that development context, pre-HP, support athletes to transition into HP. Um, and that's the big shift and transformation within the system here in New Zealand. We've essentially redefined the high-performance system. Uh, uh, um, and this is all in a context where we want sports to do it more for themselves. They own it more often. It's less of a dependence on us to work with the coach. They work with their people in their own way. Uh, and that's another very, very important shift to us. So um, we're on the edge of making this a whole lot more sustainable over time. Um, and we need to protect the quality that we have and the proven winning quality that we have. But we need to find the next generation and create viable career opportunities for them to come into this beautiful world and to make a difference for New Zealand on the world stage. So where is the, where, where do you reckon the development or the education or the skills are needed? Are they, uh, are they the X's and O's within the sport or is it more around the softer skills that you think we need to develop in terms of coaching from or developing the pathways up? I think, I think it's, it's really context dependent. So it all depends on who you're coaching. So I think for, you know, national level athletes who haven't transitioned into senior full-time high performance athlete reality, um, athletes in that context, you know, uh, um, I guess learning how to learn, learning how to plan, um, learning how to manage their support entourage, coaches creating an, an environment where those athletes can literally define their performance identity, um, set an aspiration, um, identify what's required, and then work towards closing that gap. So that context is very much around, I think, kind of defining um, strong emphasis on the coach understanding the pedagogy that's required, strong emphasis on the coach understanding um, you know, the, the multi-dimensional aspects of development. You've got biopsychosocial wheels turning at the same time. You have a lot going on there. Um, and, you know, coaches creating environments where athletes want to show up and get better and learn how to become a fully-fledged athlete. The, the challenge once you cross over that line and you've earned the right and you are um, in a high-performance reality four to eight years out from a podium success, um, it's, a, it's a different context. You're, um, you know, spending, you know, 80 to 100 days a year out of the country competing on the world stage. Um, you're working towards a clear set of standards. There's real pressure um, and challenge around that. Um, and the more success you achieve, the, the better the coach needs to be at identifying the critical success factors. What are the gaps? Closing the gap. Um, and creating an environment that is always addressing that to the point that once you do become a success, then the challenge changes to how you actually refine in order to sustain that success. Um, and the challenge for the coach at that level is how does the athlete and the coach stay hungry? How do you keep reinventing yourself when you are, are already there? So Scott Robinson's commentary after winning um, you know, the Super Rugby competition here in New Zealand was you know, our biggest challenge to stay hungry. Yeah. Um, and he's one of the best learners, you know, if you look at any of, the, any of his insights around learning, that guy's just incredible and an incredible innovator um, as well. And he's one of the coaches here in New Zealand that, um, man, I just tip my cap to him, especially. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess probably a little bit off tangent, maybe, but um, what are your thoughts on centralization um, and centralized facilities not just with single sports, but with, uh, you know, like let's say you had a perfect purpose-built centre that could house every sport under the sun. Do you think there'd be benefit in that? Yeah, I think it, I think it depends. It depends on, on the nature of the sport. Um, there's strong justification to centralise because of the cost of facilities, proximity to airports, cost of travel. You know, in Ireland, we've got the vast majority of our high-performance sports are on a 250-acre campus in West Dublin. It's You see the runway to the airport only around the corner. Um, you know, the shared facility does create the perfect recipe for cross-pollination, cross-connection between the sports, which, which we did use in Ireland. So there's a strong case for that. Um, 
but that does come with a price and this disruption, particularly when you've got a lot of young athletes leaving home and coming into what can be, um, you know, the chickens cooked up inside a um, one of those chicken factories where come become really, really intense. Mm. Um, so, for example, um, here in New Zealand, I think we create the platform for sports to either centralise or decentralise based upon what they need. So athletics, decentralised sport. You know, the vast majority of our, our event group and trolls is based in Christchurch. Um, we obviously have a presence in Auckland as well. Um, so, so that works for that particular sport because of the multi-event aspect of it. From a cycling point of view, you've got a cycling track um, down south and then you've one in Cambridge. So it makes sense to centralise in Cambridge um, um, when, when you ultimately need to. The important part is, I think, when you centralise is that the transitions into the environment and out of the environment and the recovery inside the environment so that the athletes can get out and leave, live normal lives, I think is absolutely critical when it comes to um, the centralisation model, if I'm being honest. We've certainly learned a lot in cycling. So that's something the Heron... Uh, report would have would have picked up as a significant um, challenge, for example, um, in that particular sport. So it's like anything; it's never either or. I think it's the and, yeah. you know, pros and cons. Um, the reality is that either option needs to be exceedingly well managed and resourced for it to work. And yeah. th- those two principles don't go away. Mm. And then just looping back to just before mm. I let you go, um, mm. looping back to. Uh, I think it was to um, Scotty's question, maybe where you said um, from a coaching point of view, um, self-management, self-care around recovery. Um, what, how, how do you manage that? Because it can be tough eh? when you're on a roll, you're you're doing exciting work and it's you're fizzing, but you don't probably notice that you're starting to, mm. you know, like you're a few days on the trot, especially if you're on a campaign. Do you have any, yeah. uh, any things that you do specifically? Yeah, so you know, for me, um, I think identity is, is the is the key to understanding how you solve really well around the, the the challenge around those of us that might be attached to what we do or be maybe overly passionate about what we do. Um, so a couple of things. I I I recently bought a set of drums and. Um, when I listen to music, I always seek out the beat inside the music above anything else. And um, and I've always had that in me as a human being. And I thought, right, I'm going to get some drumming lessons. Um, got an electric set of drums here. Um, learning how to play some of my most favorite tunes, Sunday Bloody Sunday. Haven't quite got there yet. <laughs> so what it means is during my downtime, I'm actually engaged in um, other activities that are a reflection of what I'm really curious about. I, recently started to learn how to fly um, um, here in Auckland and I've had a few lessons and what a beautiful country this country is to learn to fly. Part of my experience from learning how to fly is I'm not too sure if I'm a plane spotter or an aspiring pilot. Um, I haven't quite figured that one out yet. I, I think the main thing is is that you've got an identified set of activities that allow you to switch off and for me you know playing my three-year-old um, my seven-year-old uh, and my eight-year-old is a really important part of on a daily basis playing with them you know the bedtime routines um, I love to read um, a lot of stuff I'm reading at the moment is around um, work from Richard Rohr David White around spirituality um, um, I love listening to podcasts um, um, turning to the mystics is one I'm listening to at the moment and it's it's really deep around those wise elves, the mystics who, um, St. John of God, St. Teresa of Avila, these people who who talked about oneness and spirituality back in history and produced writings um, that were really ahead of their time. And so I'm gravitating towards um, a lot of that. And, um, and the other thing which has really kind of caught me a little bit by surprise is, is unknowingly, I guess, within my team in HBCNZ, we've got this... Um, um, acronym that drives how we are with each other um, and it's uh, an acronym called OUCH uh, and it kind of represents four things openness um, understanding care and honesty um, and it's, it's, it's an embodiment of the culture that's inside our team and um, 
So what does that actually mean and how does that get back to self-management? My team call me out if I look tired. And if they're concerned about me because I am walking the edge or I'm on full tilt for a long period of time, you know, Lynn Gunson will say it, Paul Smith will say it, Christian Penny will say it, Tristan Collins will say it, and they're empowered and enabled to say it. Um, so that's the other thing, you know, to what degree do we enable others to kind of, you know, make kind of your high on instinct at the moment, your logic isn't really taking over, you need to slow down. Um, so yeah, so really blessed to have that crew that way, not only around me as the leader of the team, but, but also around each other. Um, and we look out for each other. And that's a beautiful place to be. Do you have that ouch is amazing. I love that. Do you have a process? Like, is it a formal thing that you go through? Do you take time to do that as a team? Or can it just be in the moment? Or is it a bit of both? Ouch, ouch was born out of um, a, a challenge in, in, a, in, a, in a retreat that we did where we weren't trusting one another. I was leading the team poorly, if I'm being honest, uh, when I first came in initially. Um, there was a real expectation to make change. Um, I kind of fell into the trap of assuming I know the people and I know their work and I know their history. I didn't. Um, and when we debriefed um, a retreat that we had in AUT, you know, Christian asked the question, when you think about it, like key to us figuring this out and, and getting behind the challenge has been how we've been with each other. And then we talked to, okay, so how have we been with each other? Well, we've been open. We've fought really hard to understand each other, which then creates even more openness. We've demonstrated the care for each other by actually giving you the time to be listened to, to be understood, and we're bloody honest with each other. Um, like we had, a, we had a performance debrief um, last week, you know, myself and three of the team after doing a presentation, and it was brilliantly ouch. We called out what was great, what was shit. Uh, and we've three work ons, and you know, Monday morning we were we were making sure those work ons were coming to life. Um, so we meet every every week, every Monday morning. We set an agenda. Um, when we come together, the agenda is shared. I define the agenda with the team, not to the team. Um, we work on questions in the meeting. We don't we don't work, fall into the trap of maybe updating one another. That's boring. You're not really working if you're just updating. What do you um, mean? Go a bit deeper there, mate, with the questions. So, you know, for example, um, so one of the questions this morning, we're about to present a new direction to to our sports. And, and so the question is, how do we best communicate our direction to our sports? That's the question. So this morning, we had a, we had a, we a brainstorming on that. I've got four or five treads, and I'm, I'm now building the deck with two of the team. Um, but that'll that, uh, that product will go back into the team for final sign-off and then everyone can understand the product that has been part of making it better. So we're leveraging the difference. Mm. Um, and then at each one of the agendas that we set every Thursday and the meeting happens on the Monday, the acronym is at the bottom of the page. Ouch. And it's, it's an essential per permission to challenge and care for one another. Yes. Um, uh, and that's the gift I think this team has given me. They've enabled this to get figured out. Yeah. And um, I'm blessed. That's so cool. Um, I've just, uh, I don't read books, Daryl. I'm a slow reader, so I listen to it. But um, I listened to one on the weekend called The Resilience Project. Yeah. Have you read that? No, no, I haven't. Hey, it is mind-blowingly unbelievable. Um mm written by an Aussie guy and it's a, uh, yeah, it's, it's an amazing, inspiring book. Um, and, and I, yeah, I listened to it in about 24 hours. So it's, I don't think it'd be take too long to read. Nice. But yeah, nice. Get hold of that. I heard, um, I heard a brilliant um, perspective on resilience or agility or adaptiveness, whatever you want to call it from Richard Young, Richard Young, everybody's one of these people here in New Zealand who's just a legend. Um, worked with HBCNZ for a number of years. He's a real wise owl. And um, he's, he's got probably one of the best set of perspectives I've seen, certainly here in New Zealand, if not in the world, um, around high performance um, and a lot of experience, a lot of expertise. Um, but he was playing with the frame of um, anti-fragile. <laughs> yeah. Um, has been another way to look at this. 
Um, I think the the real risk with high performance sport is, you know, our, our world is about extraordinary men and women achieving extraordinary things. You know, there's a good reason why only what ten thousand people go to the Olympic Games every year um, because it is about being the best. And part of the challenge I think we have in society is is that that exclusivity, that elitism, gets mixed in with frames around inclusivity um, and equality, and it's. It, the, our world is very, very discriminatory. Um, um, and I think with that in mind, when you enter into that world, it's by choice. You make a decision and you understand what's required to survive and evolve. And um, and that's why I feel, you know, when I look at resilience and this concept of being anti-fragile, you better get used to getting challenged. Um, uh, and it's how you can hold that challenge and convert that into growth Um and an always getting better mindset that 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 literally enables you to to climb that mountain. So um, the resilience project, Jay, it's noted, yeah, written down, and I um, I'll, um, I'll stick that on my ears. Andy uh, Andy Steele said, uh, "Thanks, Dara. Richard Richard Raw has written some great stuff, and the resilience project is brilliant." And Alison McLean, learning drums, reflectively sharing a way to play everything, beating to one drum. And that we fly free. Well played, thanks, Dara. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. So, mate, nice. thank you so much nice for work. your thank you so much for your time tonight. Um, thank you, mate. Appreciate it. It was awesome. Thanks, Jay, and I look forward to getting down to Taranga to see you and your whanau and and, um, and sort out this bloody short game. Mate. <laughs> it's, it's 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 poo at the moment. I love short game. Mate. Bring it on. Oh, let's go. <laughs> thanks, mate. Thanks, mate.